I, I don't know about you, but, but general day-to-day -day life can really take hold of us, can't it? it? It can carry us away. In fact, for many of us, we'll, we'll get up tomorrow and it'll be another working week and we'll be right in the throes of it and we'll be filled with all of the demands and responsibilities and activities of that week. And very often that, that kind of causes us to, um, to almost create um, silos of thinking so that we have our, our Christian thinking over here, which I do for a few hours on a Sunday, or when I actually find an opportunity through the week to, to, to be calm for a moment and to reflect and to be in relationship uh, with my God in heaven if we believe in, in Jesus. Uh, and then the rest, the other big silo, is filled up with normal life. Uh, and then we turn up on a Sunday afternoon and we turn to a reading which seems so astoundingly disconnected from our life today. And we think, well, uh, that really can't help me. How can I get closer to, to a drawing together of these two things? Uh, uh, an existence where my life is not separated, where, where actually my Christian faith, if I believe in Jesus, or perhaps this afternoon if you're, you're looking at this idea of faith, you might be asking the question, if I, if I commit to this, if I put my trust and faith in this Jesus of Nazareth who claims to be the Son of God, what does that mean to ordinary life? Does it change ordinary life? Does it have an impact? And then we come to this, this reading, and, and I want to try to build some bridges this afternoon. The first thing I would want to say is this. This that we've just read is real, gritty, ordinary life for the people who first heard it. We, we kind of read it in the Bible, and we uh, see it as a separated something, but this was all about a group of people who had just left Egypt, they had been remarkably liberated from slavery. Uh, and then they find themselves incredibly saved, where God, uh, in a miraculous way, saves them from the, uh, the uh, Egyptian army that were chasing them. They were penned in. On one side was water. On the other side was the army. God creates an astounding liberty for them. Then they find themselves wandering in the desert, uh, looking to the next place, and then God engages with them and continues to speak to them and to shape how they are to live their ordinary lives. That's the amazing thing. This is about ordinary life. It, and so what we have is, over these number of chapters, we've, we've had, in chapter 20, we've had this section where we've got this really well-known uh, section of the Bible, which, if you know relatively little about the Bible, you probably have heard about the Ten Commandments. They're in chapter 20. And then we get a number of chapters where we get into all sorts of detailed law, different ways in which people are to live. And then we have in chapter 24 this moment where at the end of the giving of the law, Moses and some of the leaders and following on from sacrifice, 
In verse 8 to 11, we read this, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. It it kind of comes to this culmination in chapter 24 of a whole load of mundane law, which is followed with this supernatural, breathtaking experience. So we've got three chapters of gritty life, and then we've got, wow, I think the, the writer of, of Exodus uses language, it looks like lapis lazuli, a pavement of lapis lazuli, almost, I've said it on lots of occasions, the Bible often uses language which you could describe as uh, ancient world uh, cinematography or special effects trying to describe things which are undescribable in a way. They're so breathtaking that it's like a pavement made out of this precious stone lapis lazuli. It's so incredible. It's, it's beyond our imagination. And even more incredible is that these people see God and they don't die. That's the amazing thing that we see going on here. They come into the presence of God and they don't die. We're going to cover that in a bit and see why that's important. But the first thing I think we've got to look at and we've got to try to come to terms with, well, okay, this is really interesting, but this is thousands upon thousands of years ago. What has it got to do with us today? The first thing I would say is this. This little section of the Bible is the beginning or another of the early moments of God turning around the world. I'll say it again. This is one of the early moments of God turning around the world. It's a dramatic shift that takes place through these chapters, a breathtaking shift. And for the ancient world, it is the beginnings of something quite remarkable. Where have these people been? They've been in Egypt up to now. I I did a little bit of digging. And apparently, it seems as though there was no legal code that survives from ancient Egypt. All of the legal structures that existed, as far as we can see in ancient Egypt were effectively edicts from the king. That's how law worked. Edicts from the king who claimed himself to be divine. So God in the world, in the, in the, state, in the place of the Pharaoh, becomes the declarer of law. Who becomes the arbiters of law? It seems there was no judges, no legal structure. Actually, administrators who were senior because of their roles, also took on the the responsibility of law. the, the, The kind of judging between how people acted with each other. 
What happens when it works like that? What does that kind of world look like? Powerful people with vested interests always will bring horrific results. It is what we always see. Ultimate power brings ultimate corruption. That's what we see in this world. And it's nothing new to the ancient world. It carries on right the way through the 12th century. Was it 12th century? 13th? Maybe I can't remember exactly when it was. 1300s, was it? I don't know. I can't remember. William Wallace, Braveheart. Some of you will have seen the film. There is that absolute horrific moment when Wallace's wife, Murren, is killed unjustly. She has her throat cut by an unjust British ruler, general for the area. He isn't, he isn't adopting a legal structure. Actually, he's offended because when, she was atta- when they attempted to rape her, she actually fought back. And the end result was that she died for the insubordination of fighting back. That's what the world looks like under human normal rule. That's what the ancient world absolutely looked like. And what do we see breaking in? We see a change, we see a shift which God brings into this moment in history where he starts to make dramatic declarations. He says, no longer will this people who who have come out of Egypt, no longer will they consider themselves self-governing, where the powerful become the rulers. I will be their ruler. That's what God says. He breaks in and he says, whenever you become the ultimate rulers, you always become corrupt, but you are my people, and I will bring in a new set of governance. I will bring in a new set of rules. I will create a world where justice is the goal. It is a breathtaking moment for God's people at this moment in time, but it is also a breathtaking moment in the history of the world. So however we decide to interpret it, however we see this text coming about, certainly from a Christian point of view, what we would see is God engages, God speaks, God says, I will now be the the leader of my people. I will be the authoritative voice. I will be the creator of law. I will be the one who arbitrates. You don't arbitrate for your own sake. You arbitrate to be faithful to me. There's a different world that takes place. What we definitely do know is that this is a turning point in world history. Certainly in the ancient Near East, this is the beginnings of the foundations of society and structure and order, which starts to overflow into all sorts of other places. And now we've come to a world where we expect that this is the kind of world that we should be able to live in. A law of just governance, 
a world where governance and, and rightness and integrity and justice are what we would expect. And do we deliver it? <laughs> oh, we are not like the ancient world in lots of places in this world. Now, there are places in this world that are like the ancient world, but there are lots of places that are, are a whole lot further on. But the reality is that when you scratch away at the surface, we continue to see the festering illness below, which is human self-determination, human greed, human power, human authority, always brings a corrupting influence. And so we come to this little bit of text, and it's an ancient world, and we see a shift that is taking place, and it is pointing to the kind of world that we would want to live in. Isn't that amazing? God is saying, I, I, I want to give you a little flavor of the kind of world that you would really desperately want to live in. Where power is not rooted in one person. When Jesus was walking this earth, the Roman authorities were the power in the world. There was a, there was a saying, all roads lead to Rome which was the kind of the saying of the empire. What it actually meant was that all of the taxes and all of the wealth found its way to Rome. That's the way we live. That's the way we engage. And I guess, if we're really brutally honest, we recognize that we are both contributors to that in our own ways and victims of it. We live in a world that we wish we didn't live in, but God is beginning to take the world on a journey to the kind of place that we wish it was. And then you say, well, hang on a sec, Paul. I look at some of those kind of brief little bits of law that you had up on the screen when we were going through the reading, and, and that kind of really... that that. That messed with me because I didn't like some of that. Let, let's have a look at what's going on. So, we, firstly, we see that the law is a turning moment in world history. The second thing I want to say is this. The law is to un be understood by its heart, not by its specific text. Look at some of the, the laws that we read. Exodus chapter 21, 1 and 2. I mean, there's, there's, go and read it. It's amazing. Chapters and chapters of complex laws about how to govern, govern a kingdom. Exodus 21, 1, to, 1 and 2. These are the laws you are to set before them. So that's the beginning. The book of the covenant is the way it's often referred to. If you buy a Hebrew slave, ooh, hang on a sec. God says slavery is okay. God says slavery is okay if you buy a Hebrew slave. He is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he'll show, he shall go free without paying anything. Is that, 
How do we cope with a Bible that, that says that slavery is okay? Do you know what? I honestly, I read, I was listening to um, a podcast from somebody the other day, uh, and they commented on the idea that, that in generations to come, maybe in centuries to come, people will look back at us absolutely horrified that we allowed the petrochemical industry to continue, that we didn't stop it because it was absolutely polluting the whole of the world and killing us in the millions. I thought that was a really interesting comment. Way down the line there, maybe that is set. But why can't we now? Why can't we get rid of it now? Because we are so embedded in it. It is part of our very being. The whole of the structure of our society absolutely rests on fossil fuels and the petrochemical industry. The whole of the world centers on it. There's hardly anything that we do that doesn't involve it. From wet wipes to mop up sticky fingers from our little children to the the amazing new um, pain remedy cream which stops you from getting messy fingers because it's got a nice neat little plastic dispenser. We are embedded in it. We can't get rid of it that quickly. And history has been embedded in slavery. But look what God does. He says, yes, I understand that you are embedded in it, but let me subvert it just a little bit. Let me say that a slave will serve you for six years, and then the seventh year, there will be freedom. Isn't that amazing? In the wisdom of God, He understands we can't change the world in one moment but we can take little steps that eventually end up with us reaching the point where we find slavery abhorrent. But when you're absolutely embedded in it, because that's the world that we live in, we live in a world with no laws, and God comes along and says, let me make a law which acknowledges that slavery is part of your existence, but I'm going to knock you off course. I'm going to make you behave as my people, in a way that the rest of the nations don't behave. Isn't that breathtaking? If a man seduces a virgin, this is 22, 16, and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and he shall, she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. What? <laughs> ah. I tell you, maybe you could be rich with loads of daughters. <laughs> what, you can't, you, we can't allow this in the Bible. God's saying a, a father owns his daughter. If she's seduced and sleeps with this guy, he's got to marry her. And then, if he refuses, he's still got to pay. What's going on? What, what is... I'll tell you what's going on. There is a little shift in attitude 
which says that your women who are worthless in the whole of the cultures around and are simply objects become in a tiny little way a little bit more valuable than the world that you live in places them as being. That's what happens. And we look at these texts and we are so offended. And because we miss that God is taking the world from what it shouldn't be to what it should be. A virgin who is seduced in the wider cultures would be killed because she is no longer pure and is worthless. And God says, no, don't behave like that. You, you men, behave appropriately, responsibly, and you women, you have value and worth. You are not simply things to be sold if you are still a virgin and of no value and therefore killed. And sadly, we can still see places in this world where the treatment of women who are not married as virgins are, is absolutely abhorrent. And yet, what is God doing here? He's changing the world a little bit so that we finally reach a point where we say, what God said right at the beginning, that you are side by side, man and woman of value, we get to a point where we begin to realize that's where we're headed. Oh, and by the way, that's what heaven is going to look like. But the world that you've created is a world that you don't want to live in. Because it's horrific and it devalues women. And what I will have to do is intervene and I can't change the world in one go, but I'll knock you off course a little bit so that you start to value things the way I value them. I get really animated <laughs> when... when the Bible is described as this horrible, misogynistic book which oppresses women. And I think, hang on a sec, that is not the Bible I'm reading. It's the Bible, when we, when we read the Bible with only 21st century eyes, absolutely, I get that completely. I understand that completely. But when I place myself in the society as, I, as it was and realize what God is doing with these words and with His people, and He's saying, why should you behave like that? Because you are my people. And this is my law. And this is where I'm taking you. I am taking you on a journey that brings the world once again to a place of beauty and justice and righteousness. And therefore, it's not about the individual words. It's about what's the heart of that. What's at the heart of this, these words that Jesus is saying? What he's saying is dignity and value. Worth. Worth for ordinary people. We read one of the texts about not, not lying in, in, in disputes with other people. Valuing each other. Changing the world that we live in. Jesus was in discussion with uh, one of the religious leaders of his day. And he asked him what was the most important, what was the, the kind of the sum of the commandments? 
Because the, the, the religious leader was getting into all of this detail of the law. And if, if it says that, well, does that mean that we do this or does it mean we do that? And, it, and he says, sum up the law. And it, Jesus says to him, sum up the law. And he speaks back what was well known by the rabbinic community. He says this in Luke chapter 10, 27. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, if we lived like this, the world would be changed. Not because we live to the letter of ancient texts, because we shouldn't. If we lived to the letter of ancient texts, most of us in here would be disobeying the law straight away because we're wearing clothes with mixed fiber. I don't get that. I, 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 I'm, it's significant. It becomes significant because it becomes a picture. But you know, I want to wear mixed fiber because it's great in sports gear. It's not a law to follow now, but there's a heart underneath it. There's a preparation underneath it. There's a way of living where God is saying, I'm taking you to a better place. And then Jesus says, I'm coming to make a new covenant with you. Where the heart of the law changes and yet is still fulfilled. Hebrews, it's explained like this. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them in their minds. And he says to you and to me through those words, he says, take the attitude, the concerns, the drive, the direction, the trajectory of these laws and fill your heart with it so that you don't become hardened, appliers of the law, but you become soft, heart-filled, seekers of justice and mercy and righteousness and goodness. Because that kingdom back there which I took my people on on a certain journey at a certain time. It was changing the world back then. But you carry on changing the world. You carry on creating a world with justice and righteousness which is shaped by me and by my love for the world that I've created and humanity that I've created and I will write it in their hearts so that they will love me first. My, their hearts will be drawn to me. What happens when our hearts are drawn to God? We love our neighbors as ourselves. I think we, we create such a big disconnect between that so often, don't we? We kind of say, I love, I love God, I love Jesus. But we do not connect it with the fact that that demands that I love my neighbor as myself because that was what was at the heart of these laws. It was changing the world so that our orientation would be to care and to compassion and to justice. 
Imagine if we, imagine if we didn't need laws like this. Imagine if we just played out the love that is expressed in them so that we don't even have to think about the laws so much because they just, we naturally live it out because we are that kind of people. Is that possible? Well, Jesus has come so that we can see a direction where that's where we're headed. How can we know? Well, we've got to understand how is this law secured? Look at what happens. Chapter 24, verse 5 to 7. Then he sent the young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood, put it in bowls, and the other half of it he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. So here's Moses, and he's saying, right, we're going to sacrifice, and then I'm going to read the law, and they say, we want to be that. We are committed to that. And the sacrifice that has been made means that the times when we've not met that requirement is dealt with. So sacrifice is a significant part. Then what happens? That is only part of it. That's only the beginnings of a, of a relationship and a covenant and a promise. How do we know that that promise is made secure? We read later in the chapter in verse 13 this. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide. It's great that, isn't it? Little name drop in there. Joshua becomes a really important person later on, but I'll just drop his name in. Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. How do we know that what we did back down there by sacrificing, God's going to accept? How do we know that it's okay? We know that it's okay because after that, Moses is allowed to go into the very presence of God. And it is breathtaking. There's cloud on the top of the mountain. And the people who aren't close by, it looks beyond words. It looks terrifying and awesome at the same time. It looks like you could never survive in there. And yet Moses goes into there and he lives and he goes into the presence of God. And it is going into the presence of God that means that the sacrifice is accepted. It's, 
until we can go into the presence of God, we're still not sure. And Moses goes into the presence of God, and it's as though those two beings, Moses and the being of God, shake hands on the covenant, to use our language. He goes in, and the promise that God makes is secured by Moses going in there and shaking, figuratively speaking, God's hand in the glory of God, and God says, that promise is true. It's pretty amazing, really, isn't it? But it gets better. Because even all of that amazing stuff, even all of that breathtaking stuff, it's like, it's like a little kind of, you know, the, you know the little movies that you get before the main show? Pixar do some amazing ones. I love the Pixar little stories at the beginning. I can't remember the name of it, but the, the, the volcano in the South Sea Islands that sings, it's just amazing. But it is nothing like the real film. And the real thing comes with Jesus. Because Jesus isn't one who looks at a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And Jesus isn't the one who stands at the bottom of the mountain and looks at people going into the presence of God. He's the one that goes into the presence of God. He goes in there and He secures in that relationship, He secures the promise that is made while He is here. He says, all that I said would happen it's true because I've gone into the presence of God and I live because I am God reunited, Father and Son together again. Hebrews puts it like this, for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. There's a new promise that those who are called may receive. What do we receive as a result of this? Promised eternal inheritance. Isn't that amazing? What's promised in, what is promised eternal inheritance? Pie in the sky when you die? Kind of nice fluffy stuff out there? What is it? It's a world that we will live in that is beautiful and just and perfect and all of those laws that we need now to try to live appropriately will no longer exist. There will be no laws. Why? Because we will be changed so that we will always live relationally with each other in a world which is filled with real stuff. I want to do real stuff in heaven. I want to make things and talk to people and eat meals and see the world, this new creation, this world that God is saying, because I've come down into this world, like, like being in the valley at the bottom of Sinai, I'm down there with you, I'm making sacrifice for you, and I'm going up into the presence of God, and because of that, you, you and me, we can say, because I trust in that Jesus, I can gain a promised eternal inheritance. Do you know, if we could capture those three words, promised eternal inheritance, 
and we could transform them into a pair of glasses that we stare through and we see everything in this world through the lens of promised eternal inheritance, it would change our attitudes to everything. The temporary things that we get so wound up about that seem so important. Promised eternal inheritance. That's what Jesus has come to bring. And it is breathtaking. The people saw the glory on the mountain. And John says, we've seen the real glory. And it's not a cloud. It's not something that's impenetrable. It's Jesus. Jesus. 